Zoom head. I turned my mic off for it. Thank you. I was going to say, that was a totally silent sneeze. Yeah. <laughs> that would do Just it then. Spit going everywhere. <laughs> I think I see Dude. gray matter on the walls. What happened? <laughs> sneeze real hard. <laughs> Put on the Ritz. Welcome to Super Duper Stitious. The Paranormal Podcast. About the science behind the spooky and strange. Sorry, I'm mm. so used to saying one part of it and then pausing, letting you finish it, that I've forgotten mm-hmm. how to finish it. But, I want uh, to flip it on you. We're already done with that bit where we can't do it, so we just That's do right. it. <laughs> and I like calling it a bit rather than us legitimately not knowing what the fuck we're doing. For 70 or so episodes. <laughs> yes. Which may as well be 70 or so years because... That's right. The time it takes to put these things together, I tell you. Mm-hmm. Is this a dig at how slow I've been lately? Uh, now it is. Okay. <laughs> I'm Jake. And I'm Wyatt. And uh, yeah, welcome back. If you're uh, joining us again for another week, and if you're here for the first time, buckle on up. Mm-hmm. All the things your friends said about the show being good are true. Anything they said about it being weird or lame is wrong. You should no longer be friends with those friends. That's what I'm saying. We're your friends now. Mm-hmm. Do we have updates, Jake? Do you have anything today? I have one update I wanted to mention, which is that it's um, time to say goodbye to the podcast, That's Weird, uh, another spooky mm. podcast. Friend, we, we did a... Um, uh, promo swap with them back uh, a few episodes ago episode 69 for us i think which episode of theirs it was and so we have them to thank for at least one listener hi maggie hey <laughs> maggie yeah. welcome it's, thank you yeah so they're gone and uh, i guess they could now change their name to that's unfortunate <laughs> their whole last episode they were pretending it was called that's sad oh nice very good clearly and, i listen uh, all the time yeah, they, they. you listen to them as often as they listen to us. <laughs> In the off chance that they do listen to us, uh, Ashley, I want you to know that you are no longer an amateur cryptozoologist. You are just a full-blown cryptozoologist because all it takes to be a cryptozoologist is wanting to, to be a cryptozoologist. A cryptozoologist, it and, is true. And reading about stuff a lot. And uh, I mean, in 100 episodes of that podcast, a lot of reading about that stuff. Do you have any updates, Wyatt? Nope. Okay, okay. One more thing before we get started, though. I do want to um, just give us a quick PSA. Ooh, cue that tune. Mm-hmm. So this is all about that friggin' ball lightning video. Uh-huh. You've seen it, I'm sure. The one. Like everyone has seen it at this point. It's been all over the internet for the last few weeks. If you don't have the internet and you're somehow listening to this, it's essentially <laughs> a video of a blue orb. It's it's footage of the real world, mm-hmm. but a very conspicuously blue orb moves slowly across the screen from left to right, crosses over some train tracks. As it does so, little jolts of electricity seem to hop off towards the tracks from, mm-hmm. from inside the ball. And then the video ends. Yep. This video was created by Andre Trakonovets. I'm not quite sure if I'm saying that correctly. But the video itself is CGI. It's mm-hmm. from May of 2019. He made it for fun. And now it's getting millions of views uncredited all over the damn place. Oh, boy. Almost a full year later. The actual original video still has, I think, just a couple hundred thousand views. Which is a oh, that's all. decent number. But given the number yeah. of hits it's gotten all over the internet through other media come on people but yeah an important point here something this fantastic would be huge news among Mm -hmm. the science community so not just Mm -hmm. some weird thing you would see shared around on twitter or some shit Mm -mm. so many people reposted it without even beginning to question it which is the first thing i did when i saw it after my initial amazement i was like oh shit this is really cool and i was like this is too cool to be real and then started digging into it. <laughs> uh, our friend from Prohibition Tours and Chicago Pizza Tours, Jonathan Notek, what up, Jeff? Episode eighty-three, uh, immediately reached out to us for our take on it when he saw it, and I was able to right away provide this same answer. It took him no time at all just to apply an ounce of skepticism and to want to get to the bottom of it. Meanwhile, countless Facebook pages are posting this video with tons of information about the history of ball lightning oh, or St. Elmo's fire and stuff like that, the enigmatic status of these phenomena. Mm-hmm. With a final, a final tiny line at the end about how, oh yeah, this isn't ours and we have no idea if it's real. Okay, bye. <laughs> like, what a dumb discovery. Because like, no one's going to uh, get to that internet. point and actually see that part about it. So if right. you see something so amazing that you almost can't believe it, don't. <laughs> Take a little exactly. deeper and see for yourself. 
Don't just go, holy shit, and then share it. Uh, Fact-checking does seem like it's work, which it can take a little time to get to the truth. But more importantly, it's fucking crucial that we do this. This little bit of work that it requires, super important. Any crazy news headline, any fantastic video, any quote-unquote shocking new discovery, take it with a grain or three of salt. Well said. Yeah, think about it as just validating your thrill. Because, hey, if you can find very reliable sources to support what you've seen, well, that is pretty exciting. Yeah. This internet habit is no joking at all. The kind of thing that got Trump elected. <laughs> so, like, Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, for our American listeners, getting pretty close to that happening again. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Very good. PSA, Jake. Thank and you very that's much. that. So what's this week's topic, What? This week's topic is an amalgamation of, I guess, what were they? Suggested topics? Yeah. Suggested stories? So essentially, the through line is sort of sedimentary strangeness, I guess one could say. We have one story that takes place on, around, inside of, or otherwise regarding a mountain. Yes. And another under the earth and so you put those two together and you got yourself an episode my friend (laughs) and how and uh i do believe i go first nope i am always wrong (laughs) this has replaced the us fucking up the intro yes specifically you fucking up who goes oh yes no it is my fate to eventually (laughs) be wrong at everything i do (laughs) In that case, <laughs> perhaps take it away, Jake. <laughs> Today I'll be taking a trip back home. In a manner of speaking, okay, bye. Go. I'll see. I'll see you shortly. Uh, for for starters, someone came in and slapped him on the cheek right when he made that noise. <laughs> for starters, I'll be doing this trip home, as I said, uh, with the help of an article written by Peggy Dillon of the Appalachian Mountain Club on Outdoors.org. My topic today, Wyatt, is something known only as the presence. The presence. Yes. Now, when you say the presence, mm-hmm. are we talking Christmas? You knew <laughs> what I was thinking. Uh, no. In 1984, Peter Benson was a rookie crew member of Lakes of the Clouds Hut, a mile below the summit of New Hampshire's Mount Washington, when he saw the presence. Late one night. Under the tree. Yes. Late one night, Peter, a light sleeper, was alert for nighttime um, was alert for nighttime visits by other huts workers who would want to raid several um, choice objects Lakes had. What? Um, they're referring to the Lakes of the Clouds hut, which is hard enough to say as it is, uh, as just Lakes, saying that he was um, just keeping a watch for workers from other huts who might want to come and and get some of their gear. They would come and steal their shit? I don't know if it's to take it or just to borrow it and just want to make sure he was there to receive them when they came. That's my take. At night. I don't know. Just in case they get an emergency. Oh, we need to get some stuff real quick. Do you have it? Can we take it? Thanks. What kind of weird stuff are they up to? I don't know. Weird. It's a weird mountain. Have you been I guess you could call it the Lot C hut, too, if you really needed to. Yes. Um, Which mountain is this? Mount Washington. I have not, actually. I've been all around it it's one of my great your greatest failure yes <laughs> on my it was a bigger failure of mine list. because i for the first time finally did hike mount washington the week before <laughs> you roughly departed. the week before we left new hampshire and uh boy did i was i not in shape for it <laughs> i did you I hike the whole thing we hiked all the way up <laughs> And then we took the cog rail down. <laughs> and then you rolled all the way down. I was prepared to. I, I was, when we're on the very last stretch of like just all the open rock face going up to the um, summit, mm-hmm. I was thinking about how many people have died in the mountain. I was like, I'd be cool with that. That number right now is fine. I'd be cool with that sweet release of death. Yep. I, the nearest I got to doing that was actually back when we went on our bio blitz in what 2015 Mm -hmm. and i remember i went to the visitor center and i bought myself a mount washington snapback hat nice (laughs) that was super cool but i made myself a promise that i would not wear it until i hiked to the top i was going to put it in my backpack and hike it to the top and then put it on like yeah Uh, i did this i earned the right to wear this hat immediately snatched away by an eagle along with part of my scalp or something but uh no instead that hat is now gone oh no (laughs) 
because I so didn't hike it for so long and it was just sitting there on my desk or whatever. Just like, you fucker, how dare you? Uh, So yeah, I don't know where it went. It's probably waiting on the mountaintop now. I'll bet you that. Anyway, you were talking about guys stealing stuff from each other at night or whatever. Or something like that. Yeah, Lakes of the Clouds Hut, which we walked by on the way up. Wanted to go in, but I can't remember if it was either closed for the season or if it was just we just mm. couldn't be arsed to go in. But mm-hmm. uh, we just kept going. It's a very pretty area where it is. In the lakes mm. of the clouds. Uh, if you see, I'll, we'll post a picture of of the area. You get a sense. Actually, I have pictures I took that I haven't posted anywhere. I'll post one Ooh. of my own pictures of lakes of the clouds. That particular part of the mountain. And it's super pretty. Front row seat. Mm hmm. Um, so Peter was waiting for people to show up at night for whatever reason they were doing so. He woke quickly <laughs> when he saw a bright bluish light in the crew room mirror. It was unlike the light given off by headlamps of that era. Mm. He left his bunk and followed the light as it headed through the dark silent hut toward the dining room. In 1984, they wouldn't have had LED headlamps yet or anything, so that kind of color would make a ton of sense. Mm-hmm. Can I help you? He asked in the direction of the light. There was no reply. The light headed down the hut's long hallway and through the door at the end. He ran down the hall, opened the door, and found nothing. No one else in the hut woke up, and the next morning at breakfast, other crew members said none of them had seen a light. Hmm. Other uh, other hut folks told Peter later that what he had seen... folks. Yeah. What he had seen was called the Presence, a ghostly phenomenon that for many years has appeared in varying manifestations to inhabitants of Mount Washington and its surroundings. Hmm. What was weird about it was that it didn't freak me out, and it didn't strike me as uh, being odd, said Peter, who said he grew up in a haunted house. I believe in ghosts, absolutely, he added. There's too much out there that's uh, that's not explainable to me. Yet he added, high huts can be weird places. So he is, even though he's saying, oh, I a thousand percent believe in (laughs) in ghosts. Also, you know, huts that high up is a weird place to be so that's also something yeah it was it's what's a weird place to be even for ghosts let me say (laughs) (laughs) Uh, sightings of ghostly apparitions and other paranormal phenomena in the appalachian mountain club huts especially at lakes of the clouds in the area (laughs) on and around mount washington so specific have been reported for decades by hut men and women what are these hut men and women (laughs) summit weather observer you think they have a different name for people who are staying in the hut I um, guess so. It feels like a subculture of just humanity where these people, hut people. are born and live their entire lives <laughs> in the hut. In these huts. <laughs> Getting like an Ewok village thing, but it's exactly. just boring ass normal people. But they do speak only in words yeah, like the yep, Ewok yep. language or whatever. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, summit weather observers, transmitter station employees at the Portland, Maine based uh, WMTW TV. And hikers and visitors. So any of the people who might be on the mountains mm-hmm. have reported weird, spooky stuff happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Mount Washington Observatory reports 135 fatalities on and around Mount Washington since 1849. Mm. With the relatively high number of deaths on and around Mount Washington over the years, it was easy to believe it in ghosts of those lost souls, said Doug Dodd, who himself experienced several hard-to-explain events at lakes between 1968 and 1970. Hmm. One happened during a June rainstorm with high winds when crew members were in their bunks talking. Suddenly there was a tapping on a window. Doug shined his flashlight. We saw a ghost-like nebulous figure outside the window, he recalled in an Hmm. email interview. It moved into the wind and disappeared from view. I shone the light on the right right window and that same ghost-like figure moved across the window into the 80 mile per hour winds. Most of us saw it. We all hunkered under our blankets and decided we didn't want anything to do with that aberration. Well, that's spooky. Mm. Another time, while using the men's room at Lakes, Doug heard the jiggling of a flush handle in a stall between him and the bathroom door. He spoke, but got no answer, and checking under the stalls, saw no one in them. He's like, what the fuck are you doing over there? (laughs) (laughs) And no one responded, because... Yeah, (laughs) what a terrifying thing. (laughs) This Doug Dodd guy has been on the mountain for too long. (laughs) Uh, he said, those types of experiences were always accompanied by a strong feeling of a presence of something that was not normal, he said. Hmm. Of a, the presence, perhaps. Joseph <laughs> 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 Citro, who writes about paranormal activity in New England, uh, cites a long history of mountain climbers worldwide being terrified for no particular reason. 
such as two climbers who, 60 years apart, felt a quote-unquote malevolent presence atop Scotland's Ben McDewey. Oh, so chance would have back. it. I covered that very topic in episode mm-hmm. 76 of this very podcast. Hey. And we can get into some of what we talked about in that um, in just a moment. Citro, whom the Boston Globe dubbed the Bard of the Bazaar, uh, <laughs> wrote in... It's just called the Bazaard. <laughs> the Bazaar. Definitely a missed opportunity there. Um, wrote in Passing Strange, True Tales of New England Hauntings and Horrors, mm-hmm. quote, this mountain madness phenomenon was first identified in the Greek mountains thousands of years ago. Also, I just re- remember, I can't for the life of me remember when or why, but we have for sure quoted from that book at least once before now. Hmm. The uh, Passing Strange. Were we but conscious I, when we did it? or I doubt it. Um, the 1996 International Festival of Mountaineering Literature had mountain ghosts as its theme. There's a festival for mountaineering literature? Apparently, and they have themes, and the 96th theme was mountain ghosts. Wow. Which, it's entirely possible that it was meant to be mountain goats, and they just accidentally messed up their dictating <laughs> yes, or something, maybe. Indeed. <laughs> That's interesting. Go on. Yeah. The Germans have their own word, Berggeist, which means mountain Ooh, ghost. I like that. Uh, former park ranger... Uh, Andrea Lankford, who prides herself on preferring, quote-unquote, cold, hard facts over warm, fuzzy sentimentalities, mm-hmm. uh, nonetheless wrote in Haunted Hikes, Spine-Tiggling Tales, and Trails from North America's National Parks. Is she the sole uh, author on that shit? I think so. Okie dokie. 51 <laughs> national parks across America that, according to reports, have ghosts, curses, hoaxes, unsolved mysteries, or paranormal events. Hmm. A mixture wow. of all of those. I don't know. Yeah. I think it's funny how all every book about hauntings has to have some short normal title and then a really cumbersome subtitle. Oh, my God. And it's always an inventory of the major like <laughs> every, thematic qualities of the stories. We've yeah, got about every, 30 to 40 stories, and they're going to be about ghosts, hoaxes, strange places, weird vibes, and normal hikes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Is thirteen pages long, uh, and in haunted hikes of New Hampshire, Size which is one font, blessedly only that for the title, uh, author and self-described paranormal agnostic Marianne mm. O'Connor writes about strange mm. and inexplicable sightings in the state's mountains and forests. Mm-hmm. Uh, I suppose that technically I am a paranormal agnostic. These are author Peggy Dillon's words uh, from this article. I've never personally experienced a ghostly presence, even though I spent four summers in huts on a winter. Um, Four summers in huts and a winter on Mount Washington. Hmm. However, she spent a winter on Mount Washington? Oh yeah. uh, however, well. I strongly believe that on several occasions I have been guided by a benevolent hand out of danger's way. On a winter hike up Mount Washington, when uh, almost lost in Wyoming's Teton Range, and when crossing a high, rickety footbridge on a New Zealand hiking trail. This point, she's just bragging about where she's been. I know. She's uh, like, <laughs> exactly. Uh, after hearing the stories of my fellow former crew, I also can't help siding with our um with author nathaniel hawthorne who wrote there is something truer and more real than what we can see with the eyes and touch with the finger okay so touch the with main, the, the finger the main uh thrust of this whole last portion of her article easy, is just that easy. Be, being on mountains is weird sometimes and spooky stuff happens there or at least mm-hmm. seems to so yeah <laughs> what um so let's talk a little bit about what can what can feel spooky on a mountain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when we first talked about uh, Ben McDwee back in episode seventy three, <laughs> it's oh, shoot, 76, 76. I was hoping, yeah, seventy six. Never mind. Um, a big part of that whole experience is what's called the Brocken Specter, mm-hmm. which is when fog uh, catches like your shadow on it, like the you cast a shadow onto fog. So that it actually appears vertically as though it's just a big shadowy figure standing up someplace that looks really tall and scary. Right. Because so, you're surrounded by fog, it's very difficult to judge scale and, mm-hmm. what, dimensionality, I guess we could say. Because mm. you can sometimes have a very long shadow on the ground, but you're like, well, obviously, that's the ground. But if, if it's being cast kind of into space and you're right. just on bare rock and looking at just haze and you can't see anything Mm -hmm. else for scale it's gonna look like just a big scary monsterman exactly and that was uh kind of the basis for um the tales of um fear or the big gray man Mm -hmm. of ben mcdwee 
another possibility that's been brought up both there and in um, theories about the uh, um, Dyatlov Pass incident, mm. which for us, that's back, what, episode 10, I want to say? Yeah. Way, way, way back, back we covered that one. that one. The possibility of wind uh, blowing across certain parts of mountains creating infrasound, mm-hmm. which could be something that would really affect you. Infrasound can cause feelings of paranoia and anxiety and, and like like you're being watched right. uh, certain frequencies of infrasound can actually vibrate your eyeballs so you start actually literally seeing like gray shapes flitting around the corner oh, of your vision oh my god which is just crazy but that's that's, that's usually nuts. more an indoor kind of thing when that'll happen mm-hmm. but uh that's a possibility and um as far as wind goes mount washington is like very famous for its ridiculous winds it is if I'm not mistaken, the highest recorded winds on the planet Earth that aren't from a storm at That's the very top? Absolutely correct. Before uh, Tropical Cyclone Olivia, the highest wind speed measured anywhere in the world was 231 miles per hour, recorded at the summit of Mount Washington on April 12, 1934. So, yeah, then we had wow. this one particular uh, cyclone that created slightly higher wind speeds than that. It's a windy old place up there. Yeah, 231 miles per hour or 372 kilometers per hour. Pretty fast. God, can you imagine throwing a Frisbee into that? <laughs> you just lift your hand and it's just the Frisbee is inside of your skull. <laughs> <laughs> or if you threw it with the wind, it just turns <laughs> into <gone>. plasma. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, there's also a sign when you get to the summit that says, home of the world's worst weather. Har, har, har. Yes. Uh, one cool thing. Well, um, should they say hut of the world's worst weather? I mean, come on. Well, that's not the summit though. That's that's a mile below the summit. There, what? Uh, the weather down there is beautiful all the time. Make a hut on the summit. I'll post a separate picture, a link to separate pictures of the rime ice that forms um, at the summit up there. Oh yeah, Good rime time. ice is such a cool phenomenon that happens at really, especially at high altitudes when you have like high wind and moisture in that really cold high wind. And it creates this sideways, super cool ice on anything that's up there. So you'll see weather stations like that will have just ice growing off of the side in really cool ways, signs, things like that. Mm-hmm. So, and in fact, I think if you Google Rime Ice, which I think is spelled R-I-M-E Ice, um, I believe some of the first results you may find, at least several results you'll find in Google Images, top couple rows, oh all Mount Washington. Look at that. That is crazy. Yeah, it's just very cool. That's just neat things about Mount Washington. And and there's (laughs) different different ways you can be creeped out on a mountain like that. If you you are on the mountain at all and you hear the wind, it it has this really chilling, howling sound to it, even if you're not standing in the full gust. It's even more so if you're not in the full gust, but the wind is blowing somewhere further on from you over some Mm. rocks and things. You're not having that wind blowing past your ears and totally blowing out all the sound. You can hear distant sound. That distant sound is just this horrible moaning, howling sound. It sets a tone for sure. Even if you know it's the wind, it's going to definitely create a mood. Especially if you're just up there on your own or mm -hmm. with even just a few friends. It doesn't take long before you're like, okay. Yes. I I was pretty much making fun of this at the bottom, but now... Then if you're as out of shape as me hiking up the mountain and get that far up and you're just super tired and stuff... Like God, now what's happening? Your your, your entire <laughs> psyche is just broken. So anything is ready to set you off. Um, yeah. So I'll leave you with one more encounter with mm. the presence. Mm-hmm. Uh, this time it's paraphrased by New Hampshire Magazine from Marianne O'Connor's book that I mentioned before, Haunted Hikes in New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. No subtitle, thank God. Mm-hmm. Um, in the magazine, they say uh, an AMC crew member named George was sent up in the spring with a two-way radio to assess the winter damage and report back to the crew below any special equipment that might be needed for opening the lakes of the Clouds Hut on the mountain. So this same hut we mentioned before. I also should mention there um, there are different haunting stories of that hut above and beyond the one I'm about to tell, which hmm. involve there's a pair of boots that are uh, hiking boots that are nailed to the wall in there. Ugh. It's um, the hiking boots of someone who used to, I don't know if he's an AMC member or what his deal was, but uh, when he died, they put his American hiking boots up classics. there and they kept finding, exactly, and they kept finding the boots somewhere else other than where they had been left. Ooh. They seemed to be wandering around, so finally mm-hmm. they like, fuck this, nailed it to the wall. <laughs> uh, I don't know if it was the same guy or a different Spooky. guy. When he died, they made a plaque and put it on a rock outside and like in his, to commemorate him. 
and the plaque kept showing up at this um like the front steps of the hut oh and they moved it back to the boulder and ended up back on like the porch or whatever again so finally they, they the just... plaque to the boots <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> and then they started unfortunately the boots and the plaque wanted to go different directions so they ended up just staying put after that mm-hmm. because they couldn't Cancel agree each other out mm-hmm. exactly I know they, they bolted the um, plaque to the wall of the outside of the hut. Wow. And the crazy. whole wall got ripped off. The wall ripped off, exactly. Um, so this is all to say that Lakes of the Clouds, weird stuff going on there in general. And in this case, this guy, George, was sent up by himself to assess winter damage. Radio down saying, hey, it's fucked up. We needed this stuff to fix it. So as in every winter with the north winds blowing so fiercely, the windows of the hut are boarded up tight and secure. So they get all mm-hmm. smashed up by the 200 plus mile an hour <laughs> winds. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was just how George found them that day, all boarded up. By the afternoon, the men at the base signaled up to the lone hiker to see that he made a safe arrival. Strangely, he did not answer. Mm. This didn't worry the other members of the crew at first. Maybe he'd gone out for a little hike around to check on some other things. Mm-hmm. By 8 o'clock that evening, the crew tried again, and still there was no radio response from George. Mm. Anxiety rose, and members of the crew drew out a plan for an early morning trip up to the hut to check on their friend's safety. Oh, boy. Uh, they wisely did not decide to do that right then and there that night, because that would have been real dangerous. Mm-hmm. It's still winter, or there's still snow and stuff anyway, uh, early spring. The next morning, they made their way slow and steady up the snow-packed trail to the hut. From all indications, George had arrived safely at the hut. His backpacking gear lay open on the dining room floor. There on a table was his two-way radio, still powered. Hmm. They called out for him but couldn't find him anywhere. The searchers began looking outside for footprints. They looked in the bunk rooms with their flashlights and headlamps. The hut was eerily dark with the windows still boarded up from the harsh winter. Oh my god, it's creepy. Mm-hmm. Someone heard a noise. A whimper coming from below the kitchen sink. At, at last, George was found, shaking horribly and crouched under the sink with the cabinet doors closed. In his white fists, he clutched an axe and pleaded with the crewmates, just please get me the hell out of here. Just get me out of here. Oh my God. <laughs> Stunned by this discovery, the crew members quickly pulled him up out of the cupboard. He was soaked in sweat and trembling in fear. Members begged George to tell them what was wrong, and he would not answer them. He simply repeated, just get me the hell out of here, please. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Quietly, they surrounded their friend in a secure clutch and put a pillow over his head. No, and a <laughs> secure clutch and held him outside the hut and back onto the trail down the mountain. Uh, one crew member radioed back to Pinkham, uh, the Pinkham Notch base for assistance, and an ambulance was waiting for them as soon as they reached the bottom. Uh, what terror had taken form at the hut to reduce the tr- the bravest of men into this state of <laughs> unprecedented fear? George the Brave. Uh, uh, no one could say. They guessed that he had run into a wild animal, maybe a wolf or bear, and had, come, oh, come had become on. fearful for his life. As the weeks passed and George lay recovering in the hospital, he finally opened up to a close confidant and relayed this story. Mm. Oh, after my his, God. After his long trek up the trail, he was overcome with exhaustion and hunger, which, having done that myself... Get it? <laughs> yeah, you can be in George's shoes, or hiking boots. Yes, <laughs> Lauren and I do have a plan. Of at some point, we want to hike up a mountain and bring with us a calzone to eat at the top. Mm. <laughs> but we're not sure how to warm it up or keep it warm in order to do that. Interesting. Now, would you put the calzone in a pouch? Yeah, I was. Th- if I, I think if I did it right, I could use the heat. On like from my back going into the backpack to maybe warm it up some or at least keep it mm-hmm. warmer than just ambient temperature. I don't know. I just one time before a hike we had I think Lauren had a calzone and I had a pizza or a meatball sub maybe, and I had mm-hmm. a bite of a calzone. I thought this is the perfect hiking food. I want this next time we hike. <laughs> the um, perfect hiking food. Well, it's just really like it's warm and hearty and satisfying and delicious, and it's also got like the carbs from the bread and stuff. And you know what they could do is they could. Design a calzone with like a carabiner <laughs> hole <laughs> that you could clip on to your belt or your backpack or something and then swing it around, take a nice big chomp, <laughs> probably lose, oh, entirely all of the filling, <laughs> continue hiking, eat just now cold, soggy, thick dough, <laughs> but that thing would be clipped on. That's, That's just right. cool. That also... Now that I'm thinking about it, edible keychain. <laughs> Petite calzone. Petite calzone. Um, 
And when George hiked up, he's hungry and tired. Uh, oh, he, right, 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 yeah, right, right, right. Sorry. <laughs> he unlocked... The, I interrupted myself with Calzone talk. Uh, he unlocked the heavy padlocks on the hut doors and quickly went inside into the large dining hall. There he sat on the bench by one of the tables and began to take account of his food supplies as he rested. So he counted out his calzones. I was just uh, going to say, he of course. Thought, he thought he'd wait just a short while and catch his breath before radioing back to the base. Suddenly, he felt as if there were someone else in the dining room with him. He felt the form approach him from behind as if someone was about to put their hands on his shoulders. He jumped up and quickly turned around to face the back of the dining hall. Again, there's no lights on it. It's just still all boarded up and dark inside. Oh, my God. There, peering in at him from the dining room window was a face. A distorted, grotesque face pressed to the glass to the dining room window panes, which were entirely boarded up from the outside. Oh, my God. God, dude, this is the spookiest shit ever. <laughs> oh, for some reason, this story has creeped me out more than like 95% of them. Oh, my <laughs> God, that's creepy. George backed up in horror as he then looked at each window pane covered by the thick boards, and there oh, he saw, no. one after the other, the same face in every window glaring back at him. Oh, my God. The face seemed to melt through the glass and into the room where he was standing. No! That was the last thing George remembered. He was just backing away from this face coming towards him and uh, then ended up just blacking out. I would be institutionalized. Yeah, well, he was in the hospital for a while after that as far as just recovery. He would never return to the hut or the AMC crew again and has lost, uh, since lost all memory of the trauma of the summit that changed his life forever. What? How would you ever forget that? I oh guess just kind of blocked it out totally. What I don't a know. mercy. Jesus. Yeah. The Holy end. crap. That is spooky as fuck. Mm-hmm. Nothing more of that can be said. That is creepy as hell. I'm glad I was able to spook you with another one. It's been a while since I found a good, su- uh, sufficiently oh, truly, creepy one. Truly, truly, truly creepy. Now, if um, you're up for I know that was a lot of scares for, for just that one period of time, but do you think <laughs> yeah. you're ready for some more? I, Perhaps by uh, playing a round or two of oh god, Shadowlands Roulette. Roulette. <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. So, for our first-time listeners, Shadowlands Roulette is a game slash sort of uh, Curse, unholy perhaps? ceremony. Yeah. Jake and I perform slash play. Uh, we have two large, I'm going to get this wrong, Price is Right wheels. That's right, Showcase Showdown style Price is Right wheels. <laughs> Made out of bones and metal and meat and flesh and blood and all the rest of those kinds of things. Uh-huh. You can imagine that They're being very cursed. literally physically in our rooms. Uh-huh. They each represent one of two possibilities. They're the dreaded wheel of states and the repulsive wheel of other <laughs> countries. Thank you for remembering to decide which wheel we spin, we flip this cursed coin. Which is now, I mean, initially it was the size of a typical American quata, but has since grown to, I guess one could say, a garbage can lid. Something like that. Dimension and it, in size, maybe about two feet across. Uh-huh, and it, it has an unfortunate kind of uh, throbbing quality to it that it didn't used to that I'm not very comfortable with. Mm-hmm. But we flip the coin, it determines which of the two wheels we spin. One of us then spins the wheel and chooses a story from that state or country to read from the website. The Shadowlands.net. Which is a site that was birthed from the darkest regions of the internet back in the probably most evil year, 1994. That's right. And, um, yeah. So you're we caught just up. read those stories. You get it. They sort of uh, pay a sort of soul tithe to the wheels and the uh-huh. coin. All of it gets bloodier and larger, and Jake and I get to pretty much continue just living. Yeah. So prepare to be terrified. Alrighty. Would you like to flip first? or Sure. Allow me to flip first. So now that Jake and I have put a great distance between us, normally these these items would appear all in one place with us, but now... They are, of course, flickering back and forth forth (laughs) in a very evil fashion. Uh Uh, So allow me to catch the coin as it portals into my room. Okay, I've got a hold of it. Nice grab, nice grab. Thank you, thank you. Uh, Okay, allow me to flip it. (laughs) 
And Ooh. it's looking like the repulsive wheel of other countries for you, Jake. Oh boy. Why don't I take your mic? Okay, I'll just um I'll place my mic on the coin so when it faces back to you, you can grab it maybe. Okay, yeah, good call. Here, I'll let okay. the coin go. Alright, I'll put it on here. Okay. You might be able to hear me as it faces back and forth until you grab it. I don't oh know. my god, this is the weirdest thing. Uh okay, got it. Ooh. Yeah, this worked really well. I have both mics now. Uh, Jake, okay, so let's see. Since you cannot physically talk into the mic right now, I'm going to hold these mics up to the coin, I guess? Can you try talking again? Can you hear me now? Oh, God. Oh, yes, I can. All right, I'll just spin it. Okay. And it's looking like... Here, throw the mic back. Okay, here, I'll let the coin go again. Oh. Okay, okay, I got the mic. Oh, oh my god, that was gross. Um, yeah, the United, United Kingdom. Kingdom. Not for long, right, guys? <laughs> nope. <laughs> um, all right. Birmingham. Dudley Castle. Dudley right. Castle is home to many ghosts, although these are the ones that are cited the most. One, the Grey Lady. Thought to be the ghost of Dorothy Beaumont, who died of natural causes, maybe in childbirth. She is said to walk the castle steps because her husband was not at her funeral. Hmm. Two, the medieval lady. Hmm. During a medieval evening in 1983, wait. <laughs> what? Huh? Uh, at the maybe castle. Like a there was a fancy dress competition. I guess it must have been like that, yeah. Uh, there was a fancy dress competition. In the crowd, the judges spotted an elderly lady wearing a sackcloth shift, gray shawl, and sackcloth wrapped around her feet. She looked so authentic that she was awarded first prize, but she had disappeared. Three, the black monk. From time to time, a monk in black habit appears. He has been sighted three times by staff and is seen frequently by visitors. Four, Lady Jane. She was a resident of the castle but was beheaded. She now hmm. walks the castle grounds and frequently makes herself known to staff and visitors. On Halloween 2002, <laughs> a live paranormal investigation took place at the castle. This was done by the Most Haunted team from Living TV. It was the first experiment of its kind and was broadcast live all over the UK. During the experiment, the show's resident medium, Derek Akora, made contact with all of the spirits mentioned above and many more. The medieval wow. lady proved to be quite a character and said she was very proud that she won that competition. Huh. I'm sure there were no leading questions that got them there. No, and I'm sure we all are familiar with this because it was such a big deal and we all saw it on TV. Yes. She made herself known by tapping and moving things. Many mysteries were finally uncovered during this very interesting investigation. The team have done two more live investigations since then. One at Dover Castle on Christmas Eve 2002, and the other at the Midland Grand Hotel in London on April 1st, 2003. <laughs> the team did not this post. Yeah, they've also done investigations at many of the places on this list. Mm. That was a very frightening tale that also became a very frightening plug towards the end there. Extremely spooky. I was actually frightened that the next line might be something to the effect of the team is now available for your child's birthday. Yes. But thank goodness it was not the case. <laughs> I guess it's time for me to grab this yes, horrible please. phasing coin. All right, I'm going to just flip it over. Oh, okay. Mr. Shell, it, looks like it, it? it too is the repulsive wheel of other countries, which oh, I... Boy. It's still right here behind me. Oh, it's it's gone. Do you... Is it... Ah! Oh. oh, sorry. I just dropped something on my foot. Oh, okay. Do you uh, happen to know where the... Where the repulsive wheel of other countries might be? Oh yeah, I'm sitting on top of it right now. Oh, okay, good. Do you want to go ahead and? Uh, yeah, sure. Spin I got. I mean, I don't really need to get my mic out of my hands because uh, I'm already on top of the wheel. So That's good. <laughs> I'll just sort of lean forward. Like a log rolling kind of thing, where you just. Sort of okay. I landed very <laughs> softly, as though I hadn't fallen off it at all. Perfect. And turning back around, <laughs> it looks like France. Across the old channel, eh? Yes, fancy that. <laughs> Paris, 
Eiffel Tower. One night, a girl and her boyfriend went out. The girl arranged the date to break up with him. He wanted to propose to her. When she told him, he erupted. He took her to the top of the Eiffel Tower and threatened her. <laughs> she didn't believe him because he had always been so nice to her. So when he said if she married him, he would spare her, she said no. Then, he pushed her off the top. <laughs> At night, you can hear a girl laughing and saying no, then a scream and silence. Oh, God. The end. Oh, wow. Huh. Yeah, that sounds like a thing that for sure happened. I have no doubt. A very chilling thing that for sure happened. Indeed. And a little bit romantic, too. Yeah. <laughs> and that, of course, is has been... Or was... Shadowlands Roulette. <laughs> Which we said perfectly in sync, as we always do. Yes. <laughs> oh. Well... As is usual in playing that game, I feel both refreshed and gross. Mm-hmm. I feel drained in a way. Not like when you're really tired, but when you feel like part like of your is life is gone forever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Perhaps years off of the end of it. I know the feeling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Well, shall I take it away? Yes, please. All right. Well, perched on the ridge and valley portion of the Appalachian Mountain Range, Shepton, Pennsylvania, joins Centralia, just 17 miles to the west-southwest, in the heart of America's anthracite coal country. We talked about Centralia and its weird abandoned creepiness back in episode... Indeed we did, back in episode 48, which I knew... Uh, But of course, Shepton is now, much like Centralia, a largely vacated mining town. Uh, Not quite as abandoned as Centralia. It has a population quivering around 230 and some, you know, 10 roads to its name. Hmm. Uh, But either way, Shepton is, in my opinion, and for want of a better descriptor, already spooky as hell. Mm. (laughs) But in 1963, circumstances in the Shepton Mines would bring the whole world's eye to this creepy little slice of Appalachia. I think it's Appalachia. Appalachia? Mm -hmm. Thank you for the correction. Uh, In August of 1963, the Shepton Mine collapsed. The end. (laughs) Of course, there's more. The collapse trapped three miners of legal age, Henry Throne, David Felon, and Louis Bova, more than 300 feet underground. Oh. The rescue efforts would involve the relatively new methodology of borehole drilling and the financial support of billionaire Howard Hughes. Oh. Um, only two miners, Throne and Felon, were ever recovered after spending two entire weeks Jeez. underground in a tiny chamber that was just about six by six by six. The number of the beast. (laughs) Bova was never found. Before we get into the second-hand details and speculation, here is Henry Throne's account of his experience as he told it to the Associated Press. Um, This was originally uh, published in August of 1963 Mm -hmm. um, in the Pottsville Republican. Quote, There were times when we saw people that weren't there, and lights that weren't there, and doors that weren't there. Imagine seeing a door, like a regular house, down in the bottom of a mine. Mm. There was a time we heard rain, and it really was rain coming down the drain pipes, and we thought that the water would back up and flood the mine and drown us. And while it was raining, I got mad. I must have been off my rocker a little. I yelled at Davy, Davy, I'm coming home. I'm going alone if you don't want to come. But of course, I wasn't going anywhere. Not then. We were still more than 300 feet down. We still had a week to go before we could stand and walk again, not just sit and crawl, and before we could uh, breathe clear air again and see real light again. But maybe I better start at the beginning. That's the only way I can get it clear in my own mind. So much got mixed up later. We couldn't tell day from the night or Monday from Sunday, but who among us can really? I thought it was Friday all week this week. <laughs> Friday, you're just going hard every single day. <laughs> yes. Um, that first day, August thirteenth, 
I went to work about 7.15 in the morning. It was a nice, sunny day. I had no special thoughts, no hunches about something bad. It was just an ordinary working day. We, that's Dave Fellon, Louis Bova, and me, we got down in the hole about 7.30, and by 8, we had uh, filled the first buggy, which of course is a small wagon for carrying coal. We were on the bottom of the mine, in a tunnel where the sump water collects. Davy and I were on the right side of the shaft, and Lewis was on the left, separated by the buggy tracks. Lewis rapped three times for the buggy to go up and dump the coal. Coming back, I think it only got about halfway down. That's when the big rumble started. And all hell broke loose. The timbers on the wall next to us caved in, and the timbers on the ceiling above us came down. We just managed to, to step aside in time as the big chunks of wood and coal and stone fell all around us. Yikes. We could see Lewis on the other side of the heap until the power line to our work lights broke. For the next couple of hours, we could see a little around us with the lights on our helmets, but then they burned out. Our matches wouldn't burn down there, and that was the end of the light for the next five and a half days. In the first hour and a half... We just sat there against the wall while the debris piled higher and higher before us in the tunnel. The rumbling from the cave-in lasted that long. There were others later. I hollered for Lewis, but there was no answer. After a while, we started crawling over the debris. All our tools, the picks, the bars, the shovels, and our lunch pails were lost under the pile, except for a mason hammer and a hatchet. The hammer broke soon afterward, so all we had was the hatch to cut our way over the junk. We started crawling around in the dark, looking for a way out, but we kept crawling around like that for almost six days. Jeez. To keep warm, I'd sit with my legs spread, and Davy would sit between my legs with his back to me, and I'd breathe on his back and neck. All the time, we're rocking back and forth, also to keep warm. Then Davy would switch and do the same for me. We'd do this for five to ten minutes at a time. Then we'd stop, but only for five minutes, say, because then we'd be cold again. Most times, it felt like about 30 degrees above zero. And then, and this is not him talking, but things began to grow even stranger. Mm-hmm. Quote continues, I'd sleep, I'd wake up, and I'd see all kinds of light and the actual figures of people. They now tell me these were hallucinations, but the crazy thing is that Davy would see the same things I did. Oh. The lights and the figures always were in front of us, but the more we crawled toward them, the further away they got. For example, I saw this man, or the dark shape of a man, with a light on his helmet. I yelled, show me some light over here, over here. Davy saw him too. But the shape of the man got smaller and smaller as we crawled toward him, and then he was gone altogether. The fifth day was the worst. I think that was the closest we came to death. That's when it started raining, and we could hear it coming down the drainage pipes, and we thought we were all, uh, and we thought we'd drown. Thank God it rained only about twenty minutes, but in that time, I started running around wild. That's when I saw a door, just like a regular house door. Davy, I yelled, "Let's go there!" I crawled as fast as I could toward it, but suddenly I found myself bumping into just another piece of timber. That's when I got the bruise under my eye. On about 3.15 of probably the sixth day, don't ask me if it was a.m. or p.m., I heard Lewis holler out. This was the first and only time we heard him. He yelled, Davy and Hank, where are you? This is Lewis. I got a light. I'll drop it five feet in front of you. It sounded like it was coming from above. Now, this was real. I'll admit other things were probably imagined, but this was real. I actually heard Lewis, but we couldn't find him or his light, and we never heard him again. By about the sixth day, I figure now, we were just about where we started when we began looking for a way out. We were now in a chamber about six feet long and six feet wide, and almost six feet high. Sorry, I said this before. On the high side. We kept shoring up the ceiling with timber, and as we did, the ceiling kept getting lower. Until in the last day, we only had 18 inches between our heads and the roof of the tunnel. Jeez. Then, suddenly, on the sixth day, came the miracle. We hadn't heard the first drill coming down. First thing we knew, a microphone was dropped down a hole near us. We heard voices yelling our names from above. 
We crawled as fast as we could over the debris to the mic hanging from the first six-inch hole. I'm picturing one of those um, boxing match mics that hang yeah. out the ceiling. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> ding, ding. Uh, we kept yelling, here we come, here we come, as we crawled over to that hole. Up on the surface, they asked us what we needed, and soon we got clothes and hamburgers and soup and coffee. I kind of wish that before the microphone came, they just suddenly started having hamburgers fall out the hole <laughs> on the ceiling. Oh my god, what is this? <laughs> they can't even see them. <laughs> I think these are hamburgers. How is this possible? <laughs> we were far from certain of getting out then, because so far, only a six-inch hole had reached us. Work lights were lowered on a cord. Later, they sent us flashlights. The first hole was just for food and communications. The next day, we could hear them drilling again, and they got deep enough, that, but they missed us on direction. They moved the drill a few feet, and this time, thank God, they reached us within the, uh, with the first 12-inch hole, the first escape hole. Mm. This was 10 days and six and a half hours after the cave-in trapped us. We could hear the drill coming all the way down. It felt like it was coming directly at my head, and suddenly, there it was, busting through, just about two or three feet away. Now, for the first time, I was beginning to feel optimistic. They sent us heating pads, powered by an electric line from above, and one sleeping bag. One of us would work while the other slept. They sent us timbers and boards and nails, and we kept shoring up our ceiling. And now it was Monday, August 26th. It was 6.01 p.m., and they told us the big reamer that was widening the hole to 18 inches was only six inches above us. Twenty minutes later, that big, gorgeous reamer broke through. I yelled, send us a line down, I'm coming up. Finally, the coveralls and harnesses came down and we put them on. I greased Davy's shoulders and arms and hips and he did the same for me. And now it was 2 a.m. and I was being hauled up slowly. They stopped me two or three times and it seemed forever. Then they started again and I was spinning. Finally, there it was, the surface, the air, the people. As the air hit me, I felt dizzy and I fell into that basket-type stretcher. I was thinking, I'm out now, I'm out now. Um, while I was down there, they asked me if I'd go back to work in the mines, and I said I would, but I'm not. I guess I'm afraid. I'll work anywhere except a mine. Hmm. Until now, I never went to church more than a couple times in my life. Now I'll go regular. So that's how Henry tells his story, and it's a harrowing account, mm, obviously, for sure, any measure, but made eerier than asked for by the description of vivid and shared visions. Mm-hmm. And the ominous vanishing of Louis Bova. Yeah. And these two aspects sort of form the pillars of urban mythology that have propped this tale up over other often statistically more tragic mining incidents from the same area or even elsewhere. Um, so, number one, did the trapped men share visions or have hallucinations? Um, and two... Was Louis Bova truly lost to the mines, which is creepy, or, as has been often suggested, may he have been cannibalized by the survivors? In the first 15 minutes. Yeah. They just jumped on him after the cave collapsed. <laughs> like, well, <laughs> gotta do this now or never. So, for this breakdown, I'm drawing on sources including a Wilkes-Barre journal called The Citizen's Voice, uh, The Skeptical Inquirer, and an interview with... Uh, Maxime or Maxim W. Furick, self-described as, quote, among the first wave of northeastern Pennsylvania rock journalists, founder of Timothy, a newspaper <laughs> created to promote northeastern Pennsylvania's music talent, and author. <laughs> that um, specific order. Yes. Back in 2015, Furick uh, published a life work project, which was a book diving into the Shepton mine events and mythology, appropriately titled Shepton, the myth, miracle, and music. <laughs> I hope it was just Shepton. Shepton. With an exclamation yeah. point, maybe. Shepton. Um, <laughs> in which, judging from the article, he explores the facts and mythology around the disaster in detail. So, cannibalism first. Lewis was never found. And speculation still flies about regarding the possibility that Henry and David may have resorted to cannibalism in a desperate attempt to survive. Um, a weird bit of trivia. In 1971, eight years after the disaster, a northeastern Pennsylvania band called The Buoys released a song called Timothy, which is also, I believe, the journals or the newspaper's 
name uh, takes its name from this song, which tells a tale of three men trapped in a cave who, the lyrics heavily suggest, wind up eating one of their party. And I will say, it may be the grooviest song about cannibalism that has ever been written. <laughs> and I could play some for you now, if you like. Sure. They go on from there to make it increasingly sound as though they straight up ate the guy, <laughs> but have no memory of it. Apparently, though, any similarity to the Shepton Mind tragedy and rescue is purely incidental, having mm. been explicitly denied by the musicians. But, I mean, I think we all know the truth. <laughs> and I think we all know what actually happened to Lewis. A pure life of pie situation here. <laughs> They're like, they sent down hamburgers. <laughs> um, right. And then, while it didn't come up in what I read of Throne's personal account, the second and much more popular bit of mythos is that Throne and Felon witnessed incredible visions down in the mind chamber, the most conspicuous and long-lasting of which was that of Pope John Twenty-Third, hmm. who had passed away just a few months prior to the cave-in. Most amazingly, apparently, neither man spoke to the other in explicit detail about their vision at the time, hmm. but were able to agree on the finer details later. So, in the early 90s, a televised special on the Shepton Mine disaster included interviews with Henry Throne, looking, the other two guys passed away, he was hmm. quite a bit younger than them at the time, uh, looking 30 years back on the event, and I'd just like to play a little clip from that, okay. um, in which interviewer Don Pachentz uh, sort of gently grills Henry on his visions. One of the most interesting things, Hank, is the visions that that you and and Davy had in the mind. Tell us a little bit about that, place. Oh, I'm sorry. in front of me. This appeared a, a full vision of this of this man. So I said to Davy, I said, uh, "What is that?" <laughs> well, Davy's there looking, and I'm looking. He said, it "Looks like some kind of thing from a some whole holy." Uh, vision thing. And I said, I never seen it before. And he had like all red and these big uh, velvet things come Wearing around. Wearing a cross. And a cross. And he had his hat cocked in the back here. And then there was a cross alongside him that had a hook that came down this way and then around then over this way and then around. That was there until the time we came out. Was that illuminating the area of the that, cross? That cross, when it, that cross came, it lit up that we could see. This, this face later turned out to be whom? Pope. The Pope. Yeah. And are you saying that 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 face and that body was there from the time you went into the mine the time, until the time that you were rescued? The time everything came down on us that we could, you know, we got settled and all at once we seen that, that vision on it, on that wall. Interesting. Some craziness. Yeah. When you first mentioned the idea of them seeing stuff, I mean, it makes sense if you are in total darkness. Your brain, like your eyes cannot see anything at all. Your brain's going to start just trying to supply something. Exactly. And, and when he was describing yes. the first thing he saw, he was like, oh, did you see that? Like that kind of stuff. It seems like there's a lot of room for the power of suggestion to take over and them to... Very much so. Influence each uh, other's visions. Exactly. And I, um, I guess I was sort of inaccurate when I said neither man spoke to each other. But there was, it seems from this account and others that they were independently coming to their conclusions, but corroborating each other. Still plenty of room for a ton of suggestion. Though. Yeah. That's what I find um, interesting was the, the first, like during his account uh, earlier that you read, my first thought was, oh, well, they're just kind of like yeah, priming each other to think they're seeing a thing. 
But right. with this particular Pope vision thing, it seems a little bit less straightforward. Mm-hmm. Um, which is it's still it's pretty interesting. And uh, to that very end, uh, Don presses Henry shortly after that question on the possibility that what he and Phil witnessed was nothing more than a vision that they were sharing in the sense of a shared hallucination. Um, but to Henry's credit, I mean, he's absolutely convinced of it either way. He's quite sincere and very calmly and frankly sticks to his guns. Um, so Joe Nickel, writing on Skeptical Inquirer and drawing on Furick's book, offers, quote, seemingly defeat, hopelessness, and fear, an unrelenting primal fear, had set in, turning into a deadening phenomenon termed minor's psychosis, <laughs> when reality gives way to mind-altering terror. Symptoms of psychosis include delusions, false beliefs, and hallucinations, which of course is seeing or hearing things that others do not. My longtime fellow investigator, the late psychologist Robert A. Baker, observed that hallucinations, quote, can occur in people who are subjected to abnormal environmental conditions, such as prolonged sensory deprivation, sleep deprivation, starvation, and severe stress, as well as fatigue and grief. We sometimes use our imaginations to create events that are self-serving, and then we proceed to forget that they are imaginary, since the self-deception now serves us so well. Unquote. So, seeming to confirm the hallucination hypothesis is the fact that the miners' visions comprised little more than the rather hackneyed images of Christian iconography, <laughs> which I didn't describe before, but also included a doorway onto heaven, mm. heaven seen as a great golden city, and apparitions of the deceased Pope John the Twenty Third, as well as of angels and children playing harps. <laughs> Hank Throne, on the other hand, was not especially religious, and he did not know who Pope John the Twenty-Third was, or that he was deceased. So how did the two men reportedly see the very same visions at the same time? Unquote on that whole thing. So, mm. as you may have already figured out, Jake, it's time to invite our old friend, Folia de <laughs> back into the party. Mm-hmm. So we've discussed this fascinating phenomenon before, but for those who may just be tuning in today, folie de is a French term creatively meaning folly of two. You're welcome. This happens most <laughs> often when two people are isolated together, like, let's say, at a lighthouse. The more dominant personality, who is highly imaginative and convinced of the reality of his hallucination, let's just say a Willem Dafoe type, causes the less <laughs> dominant one, Robert Pattinson's, to vi also vividly imagine that what is being described to him through the power of suggestion. Um, so there is ample evidence that this is what actually happened with the two trapped miners. Felon was by far the more dominant personality. He was much older, more experienced, and more confident than that sniveling <laughs> little bitch <laughs> thrown. <laughs> um, and as Furick describes, Felon was the acknowledged leader Four decades of mining experience, information, and possible strategies gave him an inner peace and confidence. Felon was steady as a rock, and Hank Throne recognized that. Acknowledged that Felon possessed more character and resilience than he could ever dream of. <laughs> Even Furrick's getting down on Throne. <laughs> he knew that his only chance of survival was by following Felon's lead. So it was in all likelihood not a visitation by the late Pope. No. But instead, a folie de sous la terre, which of course means under the earth. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I was taking a drink of water as you said that. I like that. No worries. But they definitely ate Lewis. <laughs> QED. QED, indeed. And yeah, that we, could, we could definitely do that. a whole episode about folie de at some point, maybe, oh, or just easily. weird stuff along those lines. And in fact, I think we have a listener suggestion that we do just that with several specifics upon which we could expand but uh, oh nice i don't have to come from time later i like that and uh there you there you have it mm -hmm. um Some guys who made hamburgers out of their friend and uh created a whole mind collapse to uh cover it up yeah exactly the whole thing was their plan to <laughs> finally get to try cannibalism <laughs> out for real specifically just to eat that one particular guy Mm-hmm. they probably ate him <laughs> probably didn't see the pope and they survived miraculously i would have gone conversely the pope showed up insane to, yeah, the pope showed up in order to instruct them to eat lewis that's true 
but yeah, no, I would totally uh, not be into being down there myself either, as you were nope. sorry to say. The darkness, the claustrophobia, the, the cold, oh. overwhelming certainty that you are doomed. In a really dramatic, horrible way. Totally incredible. I didn't describe it today, but they uh, they did have a water supply. They like drank sulfur water, basically. Oh. It sounds horrifying, but it was like they just sort of sipped on it using wood to sort of sponge it up and press it to their mouth. Wow. So they weren't fully drinking, but it was like just enough to sustain Not quite themselves. die. Yeah, exactly. Damn. Moral of the story is do not mine. If you can help it, <laughs> if you can avoid mining, if you can avoid today it or tomorrow, yeah, that's the preferable choice. If we have any listeners in Pennsylvania who might describe themselves as geologists and who might <laughs> have further insight on this particular uh, incident and what they think happened, Sharon, please feel free to write to <laughs> us with what uh, what you might happen to know that we don't. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if you've been trapped in a mine and eaten a friend of yours. Please feel free to write to us at contact at superduperstitious.com. We would love to hear your story and not report you. <laughs> you can also you can use the contact form on our website, which I think would add a layer of anonymity. Just ask the That's fire right. killer. Yeah, we still legitimately do not know who that is. <laughs> well, it's John Wayne Kulosuskis, but uh, beyond that... Uh, I feel like John Wayne has an alias for his alias for his alias. <laughs> I bet his actual name is... Don Jane Sula Couscous. Sula Couscous, yes, there you go. Sula Couscous. <laughs> um, yes, anyway, very, very cool. And that's the app. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. <laughs> <laughs>